0: Okay, so I was talking to a Hacker Noon contributor recently, and he was making a joke to me about how his dog was named Dogecoin, but like internet culture, I feel like there's got to be some dogs out there that are actually named Dogecoin. So if you have a dog named Dogecoin, I would love to see a photo of him. Please tweet it to me at HackerNoon Noon and or at AmyMTom. I love dogs, and I would love to just love your Dogecoin. <laughs> Anyways, of course, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast. My name is Amy Tom, and today I am joined by Mark Gamble, who is the Product and Solutions Marketing Director at Couchbase. Welcome back, Mark, for round two of the podcast.
1: Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Thanks to you and Hacker Noon for the opportunity. I'm excited to talk with you again. Yeah, it was a lot of fun last time. Yes.
0: So last time we talked about edge computing, and I guess a bit of a play on words here, I want to talk to you more in depth about cloud strategy. So I want to go deep into it instead of staying on the edge. First, I'd like to talk to you about your background in data, because we talked a bit about this last time and how Mm -hmm. you have an extensive 20-plus year career in data industry in general but one of the things that you work on as well is data for good initiatives so i would love to hear more about that and what that really entails
1: Sure, yeah. So I, again, come from a background in business intelligence and analytics. And then before that, of course, database now full circle back into database, but of course, all of it related. So data for good is a concept that got started all good five years ago, maybe more. But when I really started to take it, pay attention, it's a movement, if you will. It's not really a concept or technology or anything like that. Data for good is about harnessing data visualization, analytics, analytics. And in some cases, augmented intelligence to help enact social change by using the data to create new insights and outcomes. And really, this is the concept is being able to actually see things, evidence of something helps actually engender support for it. It helps get more people behind it. Examples that come to mind are early iterations of data for good were visualizations on wildlife in remote areas like countries in Africa and Asia that are at risk of extinction. And being able to actually show how the numbers are depleting, specifically where, and then start to make some uh, inferences around what are some of the reasons and inevitably that brings more awareness. Started to actually this nascent wildlife kind of data for good uh, visualization. Can't remember, there were several organizations that facilitated it, but it actually brought worldwide awareness to it. And it actually started to get donations to help mitigate some of the, some of the, the bad things that were happening with these the animals being hunted for their tusks or their furs and things like that. And it also helped spur education in the areas where these kinds of things were happening, the local communities didn't actually realize the impact of what they were doing. In some cases, they might have and chose not to, but the fact that these sorts of initiatives, just by bringing a visualization of what's actually happening, traditional data visualization, but helping everybody understand the impact really gets that more awareness and then more support and often can actually start to, you know, slow the curve. Another, you know, good example, or several we saw tons and tons over the past year of people visualizing pandemic related information. Mm -hmm. And it was not always pleasant, but it certainly helped really accelerate people's understanding for the mitigation steps. Because you could clear when you start to the ebb and flow of the, the pandemic taking off and spreading within certain areas where mitigation uh, factors were taken more seriously. The dips in hospitalization and, and, and whatnot. What, whereas people that areas that there wasn't that kind of ubiquitous awareness of how to, or belief in how to actually mitigate them, you saw those numbers go up. And so when you can actually put these kinds of visualizations, we were seeing them on the news. It, mm-hmm. it really helps it drive the point home. A data visualization, a picture speaks a thousand words. Is what somebody said at some time. And I think it really has been put to the best possible use in data for good initiatives. Right. And uh, many analyst firms, for example, that, that follow business intelligence and analytics companies and technology put their weight behind data for good. So you, you might see them in a variety of different things, but always for the betterment of our social culture, the betterment yeah. of the world, really. so So what kind of initiatives
0: are you interested in?
1: I'm really interested in those kinds of initiatives that will benefit wildlife or benefit animals. So Mm -hmm. just maybe I'm a huge dog lover and and a cat lover, uh, really any animal. Same. (laughs) <laughs> and so when you can be able to understand the prevalence of homeless animals in a given uh, locale, and that will help then organize efforts in those areas to, to help mitigate those. Let's go out and have a, some sort of initiative for the local neighborhoods to try and help collect some of these wayward animals and stay and neuter them, for example, and get them adopted. So these are kinds of things that I also volunteer often to to help out with local animal shelters and and, and the like. And so this is where they tie together. And definitely, I think think we're going to see it really grow, especially now that the pandemic is starting to subside and people are coming back out into uh, the world. And I think really what we'll see is an accelerated use of data. And hopefully that's all going to be used for social good.
0: Yeah, definitely. So now you mentioned data... Agency too. So, who is conducting this data research and/or data visualization?
1: Yeah, actually, it was analysts. So there is a Gartner analyst. Her name was Cindy Hausen. Back in the day, several years ago, I'm pretty sure she's still at Gartner, but was also a huge supporter of data for good. And in fact, introduced these concepts to me at a Gartner conference. And that was one, I think, organization that really brought the weight of the mighty Gartner, yeah. but also a, a celebrated voice on the Gartner roster around data and analytics and artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of that stuff that, that she and her team covers. And then bringing that awareness. That's where I first learned about, for example, some of those programs for the trying to mitigate the, those animals in Africa and Asia that were at risk of becoming extinct.
0: Mm-hmm. So also now I think data visualization is really a skill. And you mentioned yeah. that people are using data visualization to break down COVID data and things like that. Now yeah. What about the other side of the coin where people are using data visualization for not so good? (laughs)
1: Sure, I do. Yeah, I used to actually teach a course uh, back in some of my early days on proper data visualization because Mm -hmm. there are certain ways that are better to visualize data. Time series data should be in a line chart versus a pie chart or a bar chart, these kinds of things. But there are also ways in which data visualization can be manipulated. Yeah, and to tell a story that is not actually core to what the the data shows in its entirety, a clever and often used example is in your typical X Y axis chart. Generally, in order to see if you've got a bar chart, let's say showing typical prices of something, some sort of, or maybe it's uh, how about travel? Yeah, there's the travel industry. We we could show it as being. A little worse than it actually is if the x, if we put the x or the y axis above zero. So, what that means is if you have bars on a, a given chart that are very close to each other, if you start at zero on the y axis, it doesn't look very dramatic. But if you start the y axis actually very close to the top of where those bars are, it exaggerates them and can mm-hmm. make certain things look a lot lower or a lot higher. And yeah. I've seen this used in business scenarios uh, where when doing things like seeking funds <laughs> mm-hmm. where it gets, makes it something look a lot more urgent than it actually is. And a lot of people don't look at that y-axis to see where is that starting? It certainly looks um, like a, a, uh, a huge difference between category one and category two. But then if you look at the y-axis and it's starting somewhere way up the scale at 500 or something like that's not actually getting an accurate view and it's tipping the scale in one direction or the other in the visualization and it can be really misconstrued. So I've seen it used to actually skew the narrative versus actually tell the truth. (laughs) I've
0: seen it being skewed to to manipulate the narrative a lot as well. Sure. And I think it comes also comes down to biases, addressing biases, because as you are conducting this research, if you've already got an outcome in mind, it's your data visualization is probably going to follow that too, of um, because you you already know what you want to present. I think, and to go back to like data for good, I the example that comes to my mind is the Harvard entrance scandal or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. And that, people talked about earlier this year where people were talking about the data of entering harvard and whether you are able to enter more easily if you're a black versus chinese versus white and i thought that was really interesting to see that data being represented like that yeah. where i mean okay i'm not like too articulate on the subject so i'm maybe i will get something wrong so everybody you can tweet me and let me know if i i do but i think that like Uh, They were saying that black people had it much easier to get into Harvard because of their race. And then if you look at the actual data behind it, say it says 40% of the actual entrances come from like white legacy students. So Mm -hmm. it's very like interesting to see the data being represented in that way where people just want to tell that story and not necessarily like giving the whole picture of the data. Do you think that there are certain people like specific are, are there people who are trained to be like third party data uh, visualizer,
1: visualizers? Sure. Data scientists. You've probably Mm -hmm. heard the term And those are people that are, I am not one. I'm a wannabe data scientist. They go Mm -hmm. a lot deeper than I do. But these are people that understand proper data representation, or they should ostensibly. Mm -hmm. And would always in any data representation, I also feel it's, it's very important to provide the granular data from which you derive your conclusions, any kind of data summary that doesn't give access to the underlying granular data is instantly suspect to me. <laughs> I start yeah. wondering, what are they actually hiding or right? trying to say? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's interesting where the good in the term data for good might connotate, it's all got to be happy. But often the data for good is actually exposing something that is not quite Mm. such a savory topic like Mm. animals becoming extinct or increasing numbers of some dreaded pandemic and and, Mm. but it's the good part of it is exposure and awareness because until you have exposure and awareness and full disclosure and transparency here's all that you really can't enact change in my opinion
0: yeah yeah i agree okay so let's Switch gears here, and I want to ask you some questions about multi cloud and cloud strategy because you are, uh, in my mind, somewhat of a cloud expert, as we have discussed this. So,
1: people might be (laughs) tweeting me to correct me in some areas as well. (laughs) Okay,
0: cool. So, (laughs) I want to start with like multi cloud versus hybrid cloud. So, let me give you like my best working knowledge of what this means, and then you can let me know um, if I'm right or wrong. So, with cloud storage cloud computing whatever you want to talk about there is going to be private cloud public cloud and hybrid cloud is a combination of public and private and then multi-cloud can be but so that's hybrid cloud and then multi-cloud can be uh two different private clouds or a private cloud and a public cloud and another public cloud like it's multiple cloud scenarios and it's not necessarily hybrid. Is that the difference?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really, there are kind of different flavors and variations. You are basically mm-hmm. right across across the uh, board. And the true definitions of multi-cloud versus hybrid cloud might be fuzzy depending on mm-hmm. who you talk to, but really you nailed it. The hybrid cloud concept is this, is a combination of public and private clouds, us- usually to orchestrate a single IT solution between both right? And built to isolate, for to do things like isolate sensitive data in private resources while leveraging computing and non-sensitive data in public resources. So kind of this ability, the use case in hybrid cloud is generally more around data privacy, sovereignty, sensitive data that you want to keep absolutely private. Multi-cloud involves multiple cloud services from two or more providers. For example,
0: uh, um, okay,
1: AWS for application workload and Azure for enterprise data storage. So it's yeah. so while it's similar to a hybrid cloud, and certainly multi-cloud can encapsulate hybrid cloud. or this is where the brain starts to go. Oh, it's yeah. getting complicated. <laughs> but a multi-cloud, at least in uh, my experience, specifically relates to to more than one public cloud uh, provider service, and and might not include a private component at all.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. Yes. So that's what I want to break down is the part where it gets complicated because yes, theoretically I've got a hybrid cloud. It's great. I have, or I have multi-cloud strategy. It's beautiful. But in, in actuality, it's the IT team has one, the finance team is using another solution. The sales team is using another solution. And then you have to, have kubernetes environments to organize everything and i I think it gets complicated so i guess i want to talk about like setting up my cloud strategy and understanding the benefits of using multi-cloud as well because in my mind it's got to be like partially um security focused of making sure that your data is secure in different cloud structures, whether it's going to be private or public, that kind of thing. And then also the ability to scale up quickly or work on a lot of different projects. So yeah, let's let's, let's just talk about multi-cloud strategy and I guess how to set that up.
1: Sure. Uh, First, another thing that you're spot on, hybrid cloud can be multi-cloud. It becomes multi-cloud in concept when there is more than one public cloud service combined with these private cloud resources. So really, multi-cloud computing, why do people do it? Because it brings these benefits in agility, resilience, flexibility, stability, mm-hmm. disaster recovery, cost savings, and improved performance. And I'll, I'll try and touch on some of these. But so for resilience and stability, adopting a multi-cloud strategy can really allow an organization to distribute computing capabilities. And in sim- the simplest reason is to make applications more stable and reliable. So while by using different cloud providers in different regions, it's possible to load balance and even fail over from one to the other when any given component or a compartment Mm -hmm. in this multi-vendor ecosystem fails.
0: Okay. And Um, I might classify that as like an overarching term of a performance goal for having a cloud strategy. I I might
1: consider that more resilience to to resilience, performance, yeah. So resilience would be if one piece of the architecture goes down, that's okay. You can flip right over. But it also has implications on costs and, and optimizing resource use. And I'll touch on performance in a second because you're definitely yeah. you're onto something there. On these optimizing resources and managing costs, multi-cloud allows migration of services between the providers to reduce costs. And this doesn't mean you, you throw a database in one and you throw a database in the other. We're really talking about a distributed environment where not only are you able to house and process it either, but you can also move them if necessary back and forth and synchronize between them. Whereas if a single cloud provider is being used, there's really no ability to move part of the workload to another system. And that has implications. If you want to provide more flexible options, let's say that multi-tenant or a customer facing applications, you want to provide more, options for your customers, or maybe you wanna leverage more favorable pricing. One vendor might give you more favorable pricing for a specific type of application or in a specific region than the other. So this gives you flexibility. And then let's see the going multi-cloud you touched on performance. If you have this ability to leverage data storage and processing in regions and zones with the closest proximity to your applications and users, this ensures better performance because it can reduce latency. Mm Because you're literally, if you've got an application you're rolling out in, let's just say, some area in Asia where one given cloud provider doesn't provide local services, if you're stuck to that cloud provider, you still have to go to just the nearest region. Whereas if you are able to choose a cloud provider, you get one that's local, as local as possible and better serve that locality. So that's the direct bearing on performance is in actually processing housing and processing data closer to the people that are actually consuming oh okay wait what
0: okay wait so cloud providers right like the main ones are obviously like aws and Microsoft Azure, i don't know like ibm cloud maybe vmware so are you saying then that there are like there would be more localized public cloud offerings that i could go to that would bring me closer to the edge is that what sure. you're saying
1: Depending uh, okay. on your, exactly, depending on your vendor of choice. First mm-hmm. thing that comes to mind, for example, is AWS, has been rolling out edge zones. And so they have AWS Wavelength, for example, or they have AWS Local. And what those are is, is successively more local cloud storage and processing, IaaS, to a given locality. So if in the case of, let's just take a look at AWS. Everybody knows the AWS standard availability zones, otherwise known as regions, are US West, US East. We've all seen these. And US West, I think, is an Oregon giant data center. But they have also rolled out local zones. And local zones are in Los Angeles and Boston and Chicago. What that means is there's a data center in LA or in Boston. And if you're rolling out, let's say, a new application to serve users in these local areas, you want the best possible performance. So you can actually set up your IaaS to be in a data center that's right in the city. And then you take it down to the next level. This is, again, AWS as Outpost. And Outpost is where they will, if I understand it, and again, uh, uh, tweet us if uh, I'm (laughs) off here, but Outpost is actually AWS saying we're going to set up our infrastructure as a service on your premises, so it's literally the cloud running next in the off, next office over in, in Iraq, but it's completely managed by AWS. Mm. But otherwise, it's you're utilizing it just the same as you'd use any other cloud, except you've eliminated tremendous amount of distance for data to to have to travel to be able to serve the op- applications, and so that. Um, in turn, then accelerates the app, it reduces that latency, makes the applications faster. And heaven forbid, if any part of the broader ecosystem, U.S. West data center has an outage, well, you're processing data either on-prem and Outpost or in a city data center, you're unaffected. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great question that you brought up. And and yeah, absolutely. This has implications on on even these edge uh, environments, for sure.
0: Yeah that's really interesting do you know if amazon or aws does this internationally too i don't really know
1: about this but it's nascent so they're rolling out because they're embracing edge of Mm -hmm. course Uh, we're getting a little off the but it's related certainly to multi-cloud but (laughs) i'm a big edge aficionado too i love it but uh, yeah so essentially they're rolling out If you go, in fact, we just did a a presentation with AWS, which will be broadcast next week, and it's Couchbase did latency tests on AWS Local Zone, which is being rolled out Boston, again, Boston, Chicago, I believe, LA. They basically are rolling it out to major metropolitan cities, but will continue to go worldwide. And so we're just seeing it roll out, same thing with Wavelength. Wavelength is similar in concept to local zone, except that takes it, it's in partnership with telecoms to provide 5G. Essentially, it's a local data center that actually is accessed via 5G. And so similar though, in concept, you're reducing the latency by reducing the the Mm. distance that these, that the data has to travel.
0: Cool. Okay. Yeah. makes sense i I guess i want to get into like high level strategy as well so i guess put yourself into a maybe a cto mindset perhaps and i want to understand how to manage the performance across multi-cloud because like i said what if my uh, accounting team is using aws what if my sales team is using some kind of instance on vmware or ibm cloud or whatever how do i manage my performance, how do I manage my security across multi-cloud strategy or multi-cloud instances?
1: Sure. Being from Couchbase, I'll kind of touch on every. I look at everything through the lens of data. Mm-hmm. So that's a, the lens that I'll look look through, and this is because data is, is a lifeblood of any and all applications. And so all of the security processing, all of that goes along with it, but really the data and how you look at data should be a major consideration for any organization that's starting to embark on this sort of multi-cloud journey. And the reason I say that is because there's, it's more than simply putting any old database running in the various cloud infrastructures. Which database technology you choose can really mean the difference between a cohesive and efficient data ecosystem, which is what mm-hmm. you really versus a cha- kind of this chaotic mix of individual repositories that, that have to be managed separately. They have no awareness of one another. That, yeah. that doesn't realize the promise of multi-cloud, if you ask me. Yeah. So the, the database, oh, oh, wait.
0: I, th- I think that piece is really interesting that you just said, the yeah. awareness between the clouds. And that is part of the multi-cloud strategy to bring them all together.
1: Yes. It's not necessarily saying one cloud has an awareness of the other, but components that mm-hmm. span across them should be mm-hmm. able to have kind of a cohesive awareness across this. And so Couchbase has this ability to talk to any other. Couchbase cluster can connect with and replicate and synchronize with any other couch-based cluster, regardless Mm -hmm. of where it lives. Mm -hmm. And it's simple in concept, but this is the crux of our support for multi-cloud. So the database has to be able to distribute and balance workload across nodes, across clusters, and to do so to truly take advantage of the multi-cloud. So uh, it should automatically replicate between clusters to provide redundancy and failover, and disaster recovery. It should be able to synchronize across clusters and ensure that data updates and changes are reflected instantly across the ecosystem. And it should allow for storage and processing to be isolated to specific clusters and nodes to do things like adhere to data privacy or sovereignty regulations. It's You need a database that can that's not just distributed, but can create a of ubiquitous awareness of the state of data across your data ecosystem.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's and, unpack that with the yeah. Kubernetes and like orchestration, container yep. orchestration layer on yep. top of that. Can we unpack that a bit more? I guess like that part is really hard for me to wrap my mind around and how, just like how the containers can connect across multiple platforms.
1: Sure. So in our case, we leverage Kubernetes. We even have a Kubernetes-based product called Autonomous mm-hmm. Operator. Almost all of our customers leverage Kubernetes, and in fact, our database as a service leverages Kubernetes. That's how we actually manage the back It's it's managed autonomously. So what you're with, with Couchbase, what you're doing is not actually making the the Kubernetes-based clusters speak to one another as much as they're housing Couchbase nodes that make up a cluster. And those clusters can talk to any other couch-based cluster.
0: So what uh, you're putting
1: into Kubernetes is a technology that can actually recognize its own technology running on other clusters. And so Kubernetes then becomes just part of the infrastructure. You don't have to worry of does it have the ability to connect to this other clu- uh, uh, Kubernetes instance. So the Couchbase layer is actually what does that cross-cluster uh, communication. And when you're able then to speak across clusters, that means that inherently you can actually set up and start to realize multi-cloud computing because you can have, and I do this every day on our Couchbase Cloud account, just to make the point. I have in my Couchbase Cloud account, I have a Couchbase cluster running on Azure and I have a Couchbase cluster running on AWS and one's empty and I hit a button and it replicates from AWS over to Azure, and it takes seconds, and then from there on, any change I make, if it's bi-directional, it's reflected across both, if, or I can make it one direction and just isolate data, that data only to a given node or cluster running on a given cloud service provider. So this ability also to make it either one direction or bi-directional, allows you to create that fabric, Mm -hmm. where you can, in the way I, the analogy I use is the way the power grid works. I've always been fascinated with the fact that power companies and utilities can actually move power from one substation to another, and then block it so no more comes in, or leave it there, or move it out so there is none. Uh, Legend has it, that's how the old Enron Folks used to have the you know, force Californians into rolling blackouts, is they would literally stop the power at the border until they got the price to the right area. Then they would release it. So I'm not suggesting we do that with data, but the concept is the same that you can actually move data, you can spread the data, and you can isolate the data. And these capabilities, fundamental to Couchbase, are core tenets of the multi cloud computing model as well as the hybrid cloud computing model. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our customers do either or both. And, uh, and so we find the hybrid multi-cloud often among our customer base.
0: Okay. So then as a CTO, do I have to worry then about that connection layer between my clouds or is it like industry standard or common for providers to have a solution that kind of does that? For-
1: you definitely do. And I, I'm, this is where I start to exhaust my broader cloud knowledge mm-hmm. of you know, infrastructure. So it, I don't want to tell a CTO not to, to, to look into that. But I think what's just as important is to make sure that the data layer that you're looking at doesn't force you to have to do a, a bunch of things under the covers to make it recognize other instances of that same tech. And so that's where Couchbase is unique in this ability to its ability to recognize and connect directly to any other Couchbase, again, regardless of what its underlying infrastructure is. And so that pulls a lot of onus off of the CTO and the technology leader, leaders to have to figure out how to tie together their databases. If you adopt the right NoSQL technology, you've already solved that piece of the problem.
0: So is it difficult to get my Couchbase database in AWS to connect with another application in Azure?
1: Absolutely not. So it's very easy. Again, one of the key demonstrations that I uh, do for our Couchbase cloud, which is purpose-built in fact, to to be able to facilitate multi-cloud is on the fly. I actually have a database running on a given cloud provider and I can actually spin up an empty cluster on my other cloud provider and say, push this data now, replicate it directly over. And it happens, depending on how much data you've got, but in our case, in my demo case, it happens instant. And so we remove kind of that, that conundrum of if I have two separate databases, one running here, one running there, how do I actually set up this kind of redundancy without the right kind of distributed technology? That would become a paramount, mm-hmm. a paramount consideration. But that's why here today to say when you're going multi-cloud, go NoSQL in general, because it's distributed in nature versus relational. And if you're considering NoSQL, go Couchbase because it's inherently built to actually facilitate this model.
0: What cloud provider works best with Couchbase?
1: All of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can actually say that with confidence because we leverage Kubernetes, this makes us cloud native, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. You'll see where we we have marketplace installments on all the major cloud, CSP cloud service providers and certainly work. We try and remain completely agnostic when it comes to but which what one. Is,
0: yeah. What do you have an answer of what's the best one? You personally.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, backing me into a corner because I love them all. (laughs) Of course, they're all great and trusted partners of Couchbase, but I, I, AWS owns the, owns the market. I'm most familiar with Mm. AWS and in fact, I also use AWS machine instances to set up my own self-managed Couchbase clusters, which by the way, I can tie into our database as a service using this replication. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying AWS is best for Couchbase so much, but except I, I find it to have the kind of richness of features and ease of use that, that, that I tend to gravitate towards.
0: And sounds like maybe the most physical conference. Arguably,
1: although I think Azure and GCP, are, are, they're all going to be giving each other their, a run for their money. So that's why we're not landing on any one or the other. In fact, we see it as a strategic advantage to, in fact, embrace them all and let our customers decide. Because we see it as a flexibility for our customers. We're not dictating they have to go into any given CSP.
0: Yeah, and I guess like multi-cloud really, in actuality, is very common. I think most companies probably use multiple instances of cloud operations.
1: That's true, I think, however, I think another key piece that we didn't talk about yet is that to multi-cloud is this notion of being able to actually control everything going on on these multiple cloud service providers through what they call a control plane. So a a big piece of the puzzle for multi-cloud is not just running things in different clouds, but being able to have a, a single myopic view of what's happening across that ecosystem. yeah. And so that's another area where for data process, Couchbase Cloud, our database as a service is that single pane of glass. So that's why it's such a, it's a simple demo that I show, but very powerful when I am able to replicate because I do it all from a single screen. I can see all my AWS clusters, all my self-managed clusters, all my Azure clusters, all my GCP clusters and so on. All through that single pane.
0: Are there providers that exist that specifically do that?
1: And so it's another nascent thing, but yes, there are. Please don't ask me to name any vendors. <laughs> I <laughs> they're not coming to mind. But yeah. but yes, because the hmm. multi-cloud is really catching on or has caught on mm-hmm. as a strategic objective and architecture for many organizations, there are bespoke vendors that are just creating a unified control plane. And they don't actually do anything other than provide a sp- It's the the old portal notion where you can see different aspects of your business. In this case, it's different aspects of your IaaS infrastructure in a single window.
0: Yeah, everybody's looking for that single pane of glass.
1: Exactly. And I think it's, again, my overused word of the day, nascent. I think we're going to see more and more kind of independent vendors producing these kind of what they call control plane. But uh, until then, Couchbase Cloud, that's what we offer for the data layer is that Mm -hmm. control plane. And regardless, if you're running in your private, on-prem, if you're running in AWS or you're running in Azure, any of that is all seen and managed and the replication is all managed through that, that single pane of glass on Caltric.
0: So where what are your predictions on where multi-cloud is going to go in the next five years?
1: I see actually more and more organizations leveraging multi-cloud for things like to power applications that they build for their own customers. And what I mean by that is we have a customer, for example, Facet Digital. Anybody interested go to couchbase.com and and it's in our customer case studies. But they actually build and deploy and host web applications and mobile applications for their own customer base. So they're a vendor Uh, but they needed a database back in. And they embraced database as a service, but they went vendor specific. And they started to see that being uh, very inflexible for their customers. Because if their customer, and and it was an Azure based database that they started with, it it suffered from some performance. It It took them a long time to actually go to market. And any of their customers that said, we're really big on AWS or GCP or any of these other cloud providers, they had to make a concession to go with the data layer living outside of their preferred environment, or they had to just walk away and say, we'll find uh, you know another company to build this. Uh, so Facet decided we need to rectify this. Uh, so they switched from this other CSP vendor-specific database as a service to Couchbase Cloud that gave them this flexibility and performance that their applications required. And often with Scott Bradley, he is a uh, principal engineer there, and he told us that By going to Couchbase Cloud, they were able to offer more flexible options to their customers, but they also reduced their cost by 50%, and they increased their performance by 2,000%. Mm. And they consolidated from three products to just one Couchbase platform. So before, they were using vendor-specific database, vendor-specific caching, vendor-specific. there's three things that Couchbase does by itself, and Couchbase has this additional capability of running wherever these guys wanted it to run. Mm-hmm. They're now able to use realize that better performance. They're able to actually go to market quicker. They they came from three day three and a half days down to just twenty minutes to actually deploy provision and deploy an application for their customers. And this multi cloud support allows them to use CSPs and zones that best suit the application requirements and the needs of their customers. Mm-hmm. And so that's a fun, another fundamental reason that they they went with the multi cloud and taking advantage of Couchbase. So I I think we're gonna see more and more of multi-cloud being used in in this manner. Basically, do the things we've already talked about, reduce costs, increase increase the ability to recover from disaster and have more resilience, but also just to avoid vendor lock-in and provide more Mm -hmm. options for Mm -hmm. for the customers or the users. It just becomes a a more, a better strategy, if you will, to uh, not choose a CSP-specific database to stay, to be able to retain this flexibility.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. On another random point, I think vendor consolidation is super interesting. Like the strategy behind that and having to go from five to one and also like funny to realize that oh yeah over the years i've added these like five new vendors in when i could literally have just done like this one and it's i think it's super important too because when you consolidate your vendors you also limit the security risks or reduce the security risk because the more people that you let in your environment the the greater your risk for security breaches are theoretically anyways so yeah it's super interesting
1: cool okay uh, yeah. Fascinating times for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, I think we're only going to see multi-cloud and hybrid cloud grow as a concept. And mm-hmm. Conceptually, it's very simple and straightforward, but it's wildly <laughs> powerful. Is it? Yeah, well, I think it is. Yeah. It's just run where you want. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but getting there is the complicated part. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel like I have a much better understanding now of having multiple instances or multiple cloud options in your environment. So thank you very much, Mark, for blessing us with your beautiful radio voice. Wow.
1: I don't know if it's that. I have a, a, a face for radio, so I'm glad that we're not on screen. Oh, please.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's true. Wow.
1: <laughs> this has been super fun as always, Amy. And I always enjoy your backdrop.
0: Yeah. There
1: as well. So
0: (laughs) my beautiful giant Nicolas Cage artwork. Everyone can check that out on our YouTube channel. We put our videos on YouTube now, by the way, you do have a face for radio because it's (laughs) going to be out there. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast today.
1: Thanks, Amy. And thanks to Hacker Noon. Really appreciate the opportunity
0: wonderful if you like this episode of the podcast don't forget to like it share it subscribe it do all the things you can find us at hacker noon on instagram linkedin twitter and also now tiktok i just made a tiktok guys go follow us over there and this episode was hosted by me amy tom was produced by hacker noon and it was edited by our lovely audio wizard alex thanks very much i'll see you on the internet goodbye